Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, a new era of electric vehicle manufacturing is underway in Canada. We'll get the take of the president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturing Association, Brian Kingston. We'll get more information about the Biodiversity Conference in Montreal, COP15, from Timothy Hodges, who's a professor of practice at the Institute for the Study of International Development. He's also a former diplomat. Embrace yourself and your budget. The Canadian Food Report says we're in for higher prices at the grocery store next year. Mike Bonmasso joins us from the University of Guelph. I'm Shona Thompson, and the Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister and Ontario's Premier all smiles in Ingersoll yesterday for the official opening of Canada's first full-scale electric vehicle manufacturing plant. Here's Premier Doug Ford at the announcement. Don't kid yourself. I'm going to be on the phone over the next week with a head of Pure Later, head of UPS, head of FedEx. I think FedEx is getting some. DHL thanking them for that. Other businesses encouraging them to buy the EVs right here from the Canadian plant. This is an incredibly engineered Uh, vehicle and it's environmentally friendly. So it all starts from the critical minerals of the north up up by the ring of fire and we look forward to partnering with the federal government that flows down to green clean steel at Algoma and DeFasco and by the way with a great partnership with the federal government we put uh, electric arc furnaces in that's equal to taking two million cars off the road and then great partnerships with all the auto sector to produce some of the cleanest vehicles anywhere by, with clean energy. Electric delivery vans started rolling off the line earlier in the day at the General Motors Cami production plant that was retooled to build the company's bright drop all-electric vehicles. Joining us now is Brian Kingston, president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. I understand you were on hand for this announcement. I was there yesterday. Yeah, it was an exciting announcement. We're seeing the first uh, electric vehicle built in Canada rolling off the line. And this is great news for the Canadian auto sector. This is part of a wave of new investment we've seen into Canada. 13.5 billion from four General Motors and Stellantis over the last couple of years. And the majority of that is dedicated to electric vehicles in the battery supply chain. So a real transformation is, is underway and we're actually seeing it tangibly happening right now. Well, as we heard in the clip, Doug Ford says he's going to be on the phone to Purolator and others encouraging them to buy new fleets from this plant. Is a phone call enough of an encouragement? You know, I think a lot of fleets are already looking at this, and we've seen GM ink some pretty serious deals with big companies, including yesterday the announcement with respect to DHL purchasing these electric delivery vans. They can be hugely beneficial to a fleet because you're saving on gas, uh, significant savings annually on on fuel if you have these in your fleet. So uh, I think there's going to be a lot of interest. We're already seeing interest. And and I'm hopeful that you'll see see governments as well looking to buy these electric vehicles for their fleets. I think it's a huge opportunity and and they'll be built in Canada, which is great. Uh, I know one of the things that uh, your organization, the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association, uh, has been suggesting is that we need to have incentives for consumers. Yeah, we need to focus on what I call EV readiness. Auto manufacturers are moving aggressively to electrify everything that they offer, not just fleet vehicles, but SUVs, pickup trucks, you name it. But to make that transition 
possible for all Canadians, we have to focus on things like incentives because these vehicles still are more expensive. The technology is advancing and it will get cheaper over time, but you have to incentivize people to make that purchase. And we also need to build charging infrastructure. There simply isn't enough. And in fact, Canada ranks second last of 14 jurisdictions around the world when it comes to EV readiness. So we've got a lot of work to do. The investments are here, the vehicles are coming, but now is the time to make sure that Canadians are ready and they can make the switch to electric. Yeah, I agree. What we need is is a lot of infrastructure here. Uh, I happen to work up at Mohawk College. They have this wonderful parking lot that's got this huge solar array of collection panels. They have one charging station that I've seen anyway. I see that all the time and it's going to be a real problem if we don't build out convenient, accessible charging infrastructure. A lot of Canadians are interested in EVs. We're seeing more and more people looking into them and thinking if an EV will work for their life and their driving needs. But the first thing that they ask is where can I charge it? And if you can't charge at home, which is you know great, many Canadians live in homes where you've got a driveway or the ability to charge, but if you're in an apartment building or you have on-street parking, you're going to depend on public charging infrastructure. And by our own estimates, we're about a million public chargers short of what's necessary to support a fully electrified fleet. So there's a lot of work to be done here. And, you know, the government set a target of 100% zero emission vehicle sales by 2035. That's not far off. So we need to be building this infrastructure right now. So um, another one of the areas I think we need to concentrate on is is having enough uh, power generation for when we make this shift over to uh, to having uh, zero emission vehicles, because as it stands right now, we don't produce enough electricity for that kind of demand, do we? That's exactly right. We need a couple of things. We need power generation coming from clean, renewable sources, because that's where you're going to get the carbon reduction benefits from this shift to electrification. So we have to have a plan in place to ensure the electricity is there to support those peak charging hours when people are plugging in typically early in the evening and overnight. In addition to that, we've got to make sure that we have enough grid supports to get this electricity to where people are charging. If you install a charger in your home and then your neighbor does and then your neighbor down the street does, that may require a transformer upgrade or it may require a line upgrade. That costs money. Uh, And we've got to start making those investments and figuring out where these EVs are going to initially be purchased and ensure that we've got the grid infrastructure to support those chargers because the the last thing you want is a consumer to purchase an ev and then realize that they're getting a bill from their utility because a transformer upgrade has gone through and it's it's costing them yeah Exactly. Uh, Your association, and incidentally, we're in conversation with Brian Kingston, who's the president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. Your association also outlined some other areas where consumer encouragement could be made. And some of them are pretty simple and could be done right away. They're even logical. And one of the ones that really popped out at me was allowing them into high occupancy vehicle lanes. Exactly. I mean, there are all sorts of uh, levers that government has to try and encourage people to make this switch. And, you know, in Ontario, there's been a, a resistance to putting forward a direct consumer incentive. Well, there are other ways that you can incentivize a driver to consider an EV. And if you allowed them access to a high occupancy lane or reduced tolls, free municipal parking, the list goes on and on. These little 
um, incentives can really change people's minds and perceptions around EVs. So I'd like to see a more coordinated and frankly aggressive approach from governments at all levels, it's municipal, provincial and federal to make this switch possible for all Canadians. Well, I, I'm a commuter. I would love to be able to get um, an electric vehicle. But, you know, the bottom line is I just can't afford it right now. Yeah, the, the there's no doubt that there continues to be a price gap between a traditional gas-powered vehicle and a battery electric vehicle. And that's largely due to the fact that these batteries are expensive. And this is technology that is advancing very rapidly. But we know that Canadians want vehicles with a similar range to what they can get with a gas-powered vehicle. And so to give them that range, the battery has to be quite sizable. So that price of the battery will come down over time. We're seeing total investments right now globally by auto manufacturers into electrification are in excess of 1.2 trillion US dollars. So with that time, type of investment and in R&D, the price will come down. But there is a gap right now and incentives can really help push consumers over that initial upfront sticker shock and make that purchase. And remember too, you will save on gas over time, uh, but we know that Canadians typically have a fixed budget for their lease or financing, and we need to help them with that initial purchase. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up the whole issue about batteries and replacement batteries as well. I have a friend who had uh, uh, an electric vehicle and he he had to replace the battery and he was pretty surprised at the replacement cost. But I guess, you know, once you once you have more of them on the market, the price for that is going to start to come down. It will. And and we've also seen that with the new technology coming in these vehicles, the, the life of a battery is improving significantly year over year. So battery replacements won't be something that are are commonplace. um, And it's only going to get better with time as more people have these and automakers spend more and more, frankly, on research and development to improve the, the product. Well, and with uh, the opening up of the Ring of Fire so that we can get to some of the needed natural resources, I know we have some uh, being produced already. Um, This is an opportunity for, you know, something that could be entirely made in Canada, if not Ontario. That's right. And I, I, I really characterize this as a generational opportunity. We have the ability to not only be a destination for final assembly of these vehicles, but because we have these critical minerals in the ground, Canada can be a location of choice for mining, processing, and battery manufacturing, and then, of course, right through to final assembly. And so I think if we get the policy framework right, we encourage this investment, we build the infrastructure to where these minerals are, we've got a real opportunity. And just look at some of the recent announcements. I mean, General Motors... Uh, has a cathode facility in Quebec. Uh, You're seeing more and more interest from automakers in the broader battery supply chain right here in Canada. But one of the things that has to happen is a measured approach to all of this uh, at every level of government to make sure that while we're getting the uh, batteries made, while the um, uh, vehicles are actually being produced, we also have the other infrastructure that will be their responsibility to provide that it all happens in concert and in a measured step with each other. Well, that's right. And and ultimately, what we're calling on from government is a more coordinated approach to this. The, the target has been set 100 percent EVs by 2035. And that's really not far off. But to make that happen, 
we need governments at all levels to be working together towards that goal. And it includes everything from ensuring that we're building out our ability to mine and process critical minerals, the charging infrastructure, the electricity generation, incentives to help consumers, retrofitting existing apartments and condo buildings to allow for charging. This touches virtually every element of the Canadian economy, and it's going to take a very focused and coordinated approach. We're not quite seeing that right now, and so we're really encouraging government to be more focused and have a very clear step-by-step plan to get us there. Well, Brian, you were with uh, Premier Doug Ford and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday at the announcement of of this new manufacturing line uh, coming into production yesterday in Ingersoll. Were you able to have those discussions with them? We have those discussions regularly with government, particularly on the charging infrastructure side, where you've got players at so many different levels, right through from utilities, municipalities, provinces, and then the federal government. Uh, So they're well aware of the challenge, um, but this is one of the... Uh, the the issues that we have in our multi-jurisdictional country, it it can sometimes be hard to get uh, a coordinated approach on some of these big, big initiatives. So the conversations are ongoing. We're confident we can get there, but uh, it it is going to take some time. Well, Brian, thank you for your time. I appreciate you taking the time this morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Really great to chat. Brian Kingston is the president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. We've been talking about, well, the Ingersoll plant, the GM Cami plant, where they are uh, have retooled and they are starting production of all-electric delivery vans as a step towards uh, a zero-emission vehicle future for Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. COP15, which is the International Biodiversity Conference, begins in Montreal. And as we hear in this report from Amanda Jelawicki of Global News, the suggested targets are pretty ambitious. Hundreds of police officers surround a conference centre in downtown Montreal. They've secured a large perimeter around the building, preparing for the COP15 summit. We can see that nature loss is accelerating, and that means we need to act quicker now, too. Final touches are being put on boardrooms ready to host a massive delegation. Organizers say up to 20,000 people from 185 countries are participating in the 12-day conference. The goal? To adopt a new agreement protecting the world's plants, animals and ecosystems. Everything from reducing pesticide use to managing invasive species is on the table. It's extremely important. I would say it's a generational event. It's defining for us uh, this year a new framework for biodiversity, a new deal for nature, if you like. The ambitious goals some are seeking, an agreement to protect 30% of the world's water and land by 2030. In Canada, 14% of the land is currently protected. There is a difference of opinion about the ambition and whether we will come away with a very strong agreement for nature. Um, I'm not so sure. Amanda Jellowicki, Global News, Montreal. Joining us now to talk more about COP15 is Timothy Hodges, Professor of Practice at the Institute for the Study of International Development at McGill University. Thank you for your time. Uh, good morning, Shona. Good morning, everyone. Um, I think people might be getting lost in the whole reference to COP. This is COP15. We just had COP27. Um, they may be a little bit confused. Well, indeed. In fact, maybe there are just too many cops around. 
Um, yeah, simply uh, COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and that's the governing body, the uh, the highest level of um, attention that you can do uh, do in terms of implementing big international treaties and obligations. So you've got the listeners will have heard about COP twenty seven. Uh, in uh, in Egypt recently, and that's the governing body for the Climate Change Convention. And then you have the sister convention, uh, the Biodiversity Convention. And of course, it too has a COP, a Conference of the Parties, and its big meeting here in Montreal uh, over the next two weeks is the 15th meeting of the Conference of the Parties. As we heard uh, in the report, the suggested goal coming out of this conference is about 30% protection of water and lands and ecosystems. By the year 2030, that's only seven years from now. And we haven't yet hit the targets from the last conference. Yeah, that's that's quite true. Um, I, we're really look we're really under the gun. Uh, we had established uh, ten years ago uh, in Japan uh, a pretty ambitious set of targets and goals. And uh, to be frank, I think um, you know, factually speaking, uh, we really haven't got there at all in terms of the goals, the major goals. So the record coming into this uh, to this meeting over the last decade is is not good. Uh, on the other hand. Um, I think the level of ambition um, is a much higher than it was once, and I think that's the case for a good number of the countries. Uh, but the issue isn't necessarily just you know how how ambitious you're going to be in terms of you know, re- uh, reduction of decline or protection of lands or waters. The real question is actually how you're going to achieve those goals, and that's really what the debate is about. And I think some countries are less. Um, less able to achieve those goals than others. And and then, of the course, so the question is, how are you going to get there? And how are you going to actually pay to get there? Well, it's interesting you're saying that some countries are less able to be able to hit those goals. Uh, the goal from the last conference was 17%. Yeah, Canada is at 14%. And we like to think of ourselves as being a leader on this, but perhaps we're not. Well, I think the record speaks for itself, and you know, every every country is different in terms of you know what would you know in terms of their ability to to meet the meet these sorts of goals. I mean, I think Canada's uh, reputation has been um, a really very positive one over the uh, over the history of the convention. Canada, in fact, was the first developing developed country to sign the Biodiversity Convention and the first one to actually ratify it. And at the time, Prime Minister Mulroney and uh, and his cabinet played a, a leading role in uh, in doing just that. So, you know, fast forward, um, it's, it's still challenging. I think this government uh, has a, a role to play in terms of the outcome for this meeting. The Prime Minister will be here uh, speaking uh, later th- this afternoon. I think the degree of attention that Canada is giving it is, is pretty good, but the record speaks for itself, and I think Canada actually it, itself could be more ambitious. But that requires a lot of partnerships in terms of the provinces, of course, um, and in terms of the stakeholders, such as you know Indigenous peoples and, and, and industry and cities and NGOs. It's uh, I mean, I think that's one of the good news stories for, for this meeting. You've got a heck of a lot of people coming here, and most of them are not from government. Most of them are not from official government circles. They're actually from industry, from Indigenous groups from around the world, from uh, researchers, from universities, uh, community organizations. See, I think that's part of the good news, and that also demonstrates that there's pressure on the politicians and on the policymakers to actually make something happen, including pressure on this country as well. 
Well, I mean, when we're talking about all of this and we've got a biodiversity conference of 200 countries going to Montreal to try to set some pretty ambitious targets for protection of lands and water. And then here in Ontario, we have the province opening up the green belts for development. Um, You know, it it seems to be a dichotomy of, of philosophies going on here. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, uh, I, mean, I actually am a, a resident of Ontario, so, uh, you know, I'm quite familiar with the, with the debate going on now. And I, I mean, I think that's an example, uh, you know, in Ontario of, of hmm, I don't think it's pitting one side against the other, or that tends to be the political situation in this country and many others, unfortunately. But, but I think the reality in Ontario is uh, we're looking for, I think people are looking for a balance between, you know, development, whether it's housing or industry, and, you know, the protection of the environment in which we all live in. You know, I've been, I'm not an environmentalist. I'm a negotiator by, by career. Um, but I think, you know, the reality is that uh, as an indigenous person once said to me, you know, nature can live without people, but people can not live without nature. And I think that's try- how we're trying to figure it out, how we're trying to get a balanced approach to um, to, to the living in this planet. It's not easy. It's not easy. We're speaking with Timothy Hodges, who's a professor at the Institute for the Study of International Development at McGill University. We're talking about the Biodiversity Conference uh, that is underway in Montreal. 200 countries from uh, trying to come up with a, a really um, ambitious goal because it, it seems like there's a logarithmic effect here that the more we don't reach those goals, the bigger the new goals have to be in order to um, make up for the time that's being lost. Yeah, I think that's that that's absolutely true. Um, that's where we're at. I mean, unlike climate change, however, I mean we had, do have. Um, it's not it's not uh, entirely do nothing and things get entirely worse and are irreversible. I think in terms of nature, there is there are some tipping points. There are some you can't get back from there sort of moments. But generally, nature can be quite resilient. So I think the payoff. The payoff in terms of investing in protecting ecosystems, uh, fish, wildlife, um, the payoff can be really quite high in terms of percentage of investment. And I think that's a really good way to look at things. I mean, it's an investment um, with, uh, with really big positives. And, you know, whether that's the case of protecting, uh, you know, natural systems or protecting the the food systems that you know we depend on i mean really it's you can look at an investment but basically you can also look at it as survival I mean, without without nature we can't actually survive as i mentioned and i think that's literally the case i mean it absolutely is the case so it's it's it, these are actually looking at we're looking at win-win situations rather than the typical sort of like developed country versus developing country industry versus you know NGOs. I don't think it's 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 I don't think it's that at all. And I think it has been. And I think we're at a moment where we can make it something about win-win-win-win. Well, I think, you know, you were mentioning that there are some of the countries that will be in attendance at this conference uh, for whom trying to make these um, uh, these goals. It's very expensive. It's it's very difficult for them to be able to do with your background as a diplomat in environmental, economic and trade policy issues. Do we have to make this more economically effective to do what is environmentally correct in order to really have an effective change? Well, I do think it is about uh, it is it is about uh, not just about money. It's about it's about economics. I mean, that's the whole principle around sustainable development. I mean, that means a lot of things to a lot of people, and I think that's the case in terms of your listeners as well. But you know, in in my mind, it is um, it is actually uh, it is time to sort of 
to do their financial equations in terms of uh, what we do uh, in, a, in economic activities and what that actually means for quality of life for, for people, for the citizens of Ontario, for the citizens of Canada, for the citizens of the world. And the economics, uh, the ability to actually analyze and see you know, where the best investments lie, we actually do now have those tools. Those actually exist. And we've seen that in the Biodiversity Convention uh, meetings where we actually have data to show that an investment in saving a, a marshland can actually turn into an, a, a clear economic uh, benefit. So we have the tools to analyze, we have the tools to make the argument, we have the tools to make the right decisions in terms of development. Well, Mr. Hodges, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Timothy Hodges is a professor of practice at the Institute for the Study of International Development at McGill University. We've been talking about the Biodiversity Conference uh, that is underway in Montreal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The latest Canada food price report is out and you're being told to expect even higher prices at the grocery store. We get more in this report from Ross Lord of Global News. Janice Berry has always tried to give to others. Now she's conflicted about coming to this Nova Scotia food bank for help. Well, there's two sides of it. There's the, thank goodness I have the help when I need it. And then there's shame because I can't take care of myself anymore. It's not her fault. Her career as a correctional officer was derailed by a painful and now chronic kidney condition. Then her husband died. Janice currently lives on long-term disability payments, less than half of her previous income. I was getting by, but then when all the prices started going up, there was just, you know, you wait till payday to go grocery shopping, so you have the money, and then payday comes and you pay your bills, and you realize you don't have the money. You just don't have it. She's among a record high number of Canadians turning to food banks. We have never had so many new people. In one week, we had five today, new people we signed up, and four yesterday. And most of those people have not been to a food bank before. Food bank managers anticipate even more demand if Canada's food price report is accurate. 2023 won't won't be much of a break for families uh, who are struggling, unfortunately. The report estimates a family of four will spend more than $16,000 on food next year, $1,000 more than this year. It predicts overall food will cost Canadians between 5 and 7% more. That report from Ross, Lord of Global News. And while it was out of Nova Scotia, we've been hearing in Ontario about the increased demand at food banks, with some people who have never been to a food bank before needing to turn to them now. And with the latest food price report showing a 5 to 7% hike, well, that may force more to follow suit. Uh, joining us from the University of Guelph is Mike Von Masso, the Ontario Agricultural, Agricultural College Chair in Food System Leadership. Uh, and he's also an Associate Professor in Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics. That is one long business card. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Shona. <laughs> the report could be described as one of belt tightening in more ways than one. Yeah, it's uh, for sure. You know, we've seen food prices go up significantly this year and and we were hoping perhaps that 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 we would see some relief next year but you know the fundamentals are are still out there the, the things that were causing pressure this year are 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 likely to continue and so uh we will see uh, likely not only uh, uh not relief but more pressure coming going forward 
Now, where do we know where the price hikes are going to come? Well, in this circumstance, we're really thinking that those there there's varying amounts of increases, but we're we're seeing pressure across the board, and and it, you know things like the war in the Ukraine, uh, increase in fuel prices, uh, and and some of those kinds of dr- drought and and extreme weather events. Those sorts of things cause pressure across the board. We see, frankly, some micro things like the shortage of lettuce that we've had uh, recently that that can cause certain things to go up but a lot of the a lot of the factors that are affecting food price inflation are are more general and so yeah the, we're we're going to see pressure across the board probably a little higher on things like meat but i think probably uh depending on when we are in the season, pressure across the board. Well, you know, we always expect that vegetable prices are going to be a little bit more expensive in winter in this country because we have to import them from warmer climes. So, of course, as you were alluding before, the increased cost of diesel is going to have a real impact on that. Um, And I'd also heard that there's going to be another price hike come the new year in the dairy realm. Yeah, so the the dairy price increase... uh, was announced and it's at about two percent. So, so really, uh, in the short term, the increase in dairy is not likely to be as significant as we'll see in some other uh, some other areas. Primarily because we produce most of that dairy product here at home. The other factor, you know, you talked about diesel. The other factor that's significant is the value of the Canadian dollar versus uh, the U.S. dollar, which means those imports get more expensive as well. Well, one of the predictions I heard was that there may not be at least an easing of the inflation of food prices until the second part of next year when interest rates may start to decline. Well, predicting uh, predicting interest rates is always a bit of a, a mugs game, and, and I won't get too much involved in there. But but I think that we are seeing, at least hearing, that that. While we may see a couple of more point, uh, a couple of more increases in in interest rates, the plan is that it that it won't go up a bunch, and that if general inflation, the products other than food, come down, we might see some relief uh, on interest rates, which could help, which could help the Canadian dollar. The other thing that that we need to do as we look forward is to say, uh, while we're not really optimistic about the war in Ukraine, uh, we're hopeful that. Uh, sort of weather conditions and water levels improve a little bit so we have a good summer next summer and we receive we see some relief as we get into the canadian production season i'm speaking with mike von masso who is the ontario agricultural college chair in food system leadership is also an associate professor in food agriculture and resource economics mike i gotta tell you having been raised in niagara i'm I'm starting to think maybe we've got to rethink the way we've been doing food for a while now because it's really tough to think that while we grow tender fruits and some vegetables they get shipped over to china for canning and then they get sent back here and maybe we've got to rethink all of that you know given the cost of transportation I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there are real opportunities for us to uh, to enhance our food processing sector here. We've seen some losses uh, for a variety of reasons, not least uh, labor costs and, frankly, labor availability. So I, I think if we prioritize some processing here, particularly as uh, both the Canadian dollar goes low and 
transportation costs go up, we might at least be able to provide ourselves with a buffer or some resilience as we're rocked by some of these inflationary pressures. Um, do you think that there's any help the government can give us? I mean, if we're talking about uh, roughly a $1,000 a year increase for a family of four, $500 for two adults in a household, um, you know, that's going to be really tough. That's going to make more people slide into needing food banks, as we heard in that report. Well, and and I think that, Shona, that, that's a particularly important point, is that that uh, there are things... The, the the impact on households is highly variable. Uh, you know, I'm lucky I have a job. I've kept that job through the pandemic. Our household has two incomes. Uh, and so we feel the pinch of food price inflation and we make adjustments like many families do. But we, we can make those adjustments and it doesn't cost us food on the table. Uh, so I'm unlikely to spend $1,000 more next year because I'll make some changes in my diet. If you are one of those people we heard in your introduction that are struggling uh, to to not only pay for food expenses but other expenses on a fixed income uh, that that they are making sort of explicit choices between buying food and paying rent and and those sorts of things. I think if we if we do see some government intervention, which is going to be tough given what governments spent through COVID, that should be focused on the people who are on disability, on the people who are on Ontario Works, are the people who are on on limited retirement incomes, and and say that those are the ones that 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 we should be focusing on because they're the ones who are having to make real compromises on how much they eat. That's not to diminish the the impact on the rest of the population who are going to have to make, you know, uh, choices about what they eat and how they eat. But we can do things to sort of avoid all of that $1,000 increase by, you know, buying what's on special, buying what's in season, perhaps saying that I can buy good, healthy Canadian frozen fruits and vegetables rather than that expensive imported stuff. So, so yeah, I think there's things that government can do at the low end of the income spectrum. And there are things that we can do in our own homes to, to sort of at least buffer us against those increases. Well, one of your areas of expertise is in food waste, and we're pretty bad at that. We, we are. Uh, you're exactly right. We are bad at, at food waste. And I think we are seeing people pay more attention to it. One of the things we found was that when people were at home more during the pandemic, that they that the amount of food they threw out uh, actually decreased. So I, if some of those habits will stick, that we're paying attention to what we have in the fridge because it's more expensive. We're we're doing a better job of eating those leftovers. We're doing a better job. This is what my wife complains about me all the time is if it's at the back of the fridge, I never see it. And then we end up throwing it out. If we, you know, frankly, if we just spend more time thinking about what we throw out, we'll throw less of it out. And it provides us a real opportunity to save. You know, if, if I, I used to tell people that, you know, given what we were throwing out in our households, you know, we bring five bags of groceries home, we may as well leave one of them at the count, uh, at, at the curb right away, because we're going to be carrying it out there later anyway. So yeah, just paying attention to it, doing, uh, doing some smart things, thinking about how we're storing it, really being mindful about using things we can we can go a long way again to reducing our uh the, the cost uh, of these food price increases mike always good to talk to you thank you for having me shona looking forward to chatting again 
we probably will sooner rather than later. Mike Von Masso is the Ontario Agricultural College Chair in Food System Leadership. He's also an Associate Professor in Food Agriculture and Resource Economics. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.